0: The following is a Hoop Bowl presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to another week of Fantasy NBA Today. Hold the fantasy, and you may have noticed. This podcast is dropping a little bit later than you're used to, and that may be the course this week. We'll try to get back to a normal schedule next week. Some uh, childcare related stuff has surfaced, and I'm going to try to get these shows out basically whenever I can squeeze in 30 to 40 minutes of, uh, I can't say uninterrupted, but somewhat uninterrupted recording time, and so I thank you in advance for bearing with me. It's the start of a new week here on the pod. It's our first show in October, which is kind of intriguing. I uh, even last week, it was kind of like, oh, right, October happened. We are basically a week from the NBA being over, regardless of what happens the rest of the way in the finals. And then we hit a nebulous offseason where still no one has any idea when the 2021 NBA season is going to happen. We've been told that it's it's almost definitely not starting at any point during this calendar year, 2020, whatever game the finals end at will be the last game we see this year, which, you know, honestly, is 2020's gone. That's totally fine. But then the question becomes, when do we see basketball again? Uh, in an interview a couple weeks ago, Adam Silver was saying that he thought Jan- mid-January at the earliest, which means that February is still on the table NBA loves the uh, the Martin Luther King Jr. Slate games all through the day and all through the night, which I know I think we all do as well, just watching games from basically like 10 a.m. here on the Pacific Coast all the way until about 10 p.m., something 12 hours of games. That would be a great way to kind of bust back in. But at the same time, they want to be able to get some people in the arenas. And if games started right this second, you wouldn't be able to. And I don't think that there's a whole lot of hope that that'll change in the next month or two with the expected spike of cases coming in colder states in the fall and winter where folks are kind of forced inside. We're fortunate here, at least in California, that uh, you know large portions of the state, we don't really experience winter. So you know, in Los Angeles, we don't really ever have to go inside if we don't want to. And I know that's a, a, a big part of it. And for NBA arenas... It's all inside. Uh, you're seeing some fans being allowed into football games, possibly too many. I know uh, Cowboys had like 25,000 people at their game. I, I can't imagine even with social distancing that, that would wouldn't be some kind of spreading event. But you can understand where, you know, a stadium that seats thirty or 40,000 people, if you put a few thousand in there, they wouldn't even see one another. Like, have you ever been to a baseball arena During batting practice, when there are like a thousand people in the in a in a fifty or forty or fifty thousand person stadium, the only reason you see the other people is because everybody's gathering in the same area for home run balls. If you split those people across an entire stadium, you'd never cross paths with anyone, other than security. So I guess that's the other issue: is you'd have to pay security for an entire arena to put a couple thousand people in there. So there's this trade-off happening where the NBA is trying to figure out when next season can start, when they can actually put even a handful of fans into a home arena. I can't imagine we see anything close to a packed stadium probably all of next basketball season, but I think they're just saying, look, if there's even a way we can maximize the percent of things that we can do, that's what we have to work with. All that to say that when the finals are over, we go into sort of a weird hibernation. I mean, we're going to have shows every day. We never, we're not skipping that. We're not taking any days off. It's still going to be a Monday through Friday show. Uh, we're going to dive into some NBA draft stuff. There will be free agency at some point. They still haven't rededicated that day, but you know, based on what we've seen in seasons past. If the finals are ending in about a week, mid-October, and the draft is about a month after that, I think you probably see free agency a couple weeks after the draft. So maybe the end of November, beginning of December. So we'll have about a month of shows dedicated to the draft and, you know, maybe some other miscellaneous silliness mixed in there. We'll have a couple of weeks of shows where you sort of look towards free agency, and then we can actually get into some real fantasy stuff. Once we know where people are going, you can remake all your numbers remake all your projections, rebuild all of our teams. We'll go through the teams potentially one by one, depending on how much time we have. And before you know it, the other funny thing about this is uh, free agency is probably going to get mushed up near training camp a lot closer. In seasons past, under normal circumstances, free agency is July 1st, a moratorium. People start signing a couple days later. The season doesn't start... I mean, a normal season wouldn't have started yet. We're still about uh, two weeks or so away from a normal NBA start time. It's about three months, a little more than three months between the start of free agency and the start of a season. If they start free agency in late November, three months would be the end of February. Do you think that's a possibility? I guess. But boy, that'd be pushing it a long way. If you started the season near the end of February... Then you go end of March, April, May, June, July, August. The playoffs would start in September. That's actually a full, roughly uh, two to three weeks later than they started this year. I don't think the I don't think the NBA wants to push the season later into a calendar cycle. I think I think at the very worst case scenario, they keep it at about the same, which would be a season start in more towards early February. So that's probably the latest. I think the NBA is hesitant to put that window on things because they don't want to box themselves in. But if I had to guess, I think that when they say, you know, mid-January at the earliest, it's probably mid-February at the latest. I think it's about a one-month window that they're looking at right now. At least if they plan on getting 82 games in, which I assume they they would for TV money. Because TV money is still gonna be good, at least until they hit the summertime and nobody watches anything, nobody pays attention to anything. Uh, I don't even remember if I said my name. I'm Dan Bespers. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. If you want to give me a follow on Twitter, this is a HoopBall presentation. HoopBall tweets and a lot of stuff is already out today when I put the podcast out in a late afternoon Pacific time. Most of the shows for HoopBall have already dropped. The Today in Sports betting crew already has their Monday night football show out with John Ryan as the guest, Devin and Ira hosting that show. Hoopball Heat and Hoopball Lakers, each with a recap on yesterday's ball game, and that's what we'll be doing here shortly. Uh, there was a Hoopball Hawks episode dropped over the weekend. Hoopball Grizzlies episode dropped late last week. Um, and I think, does that mostly catch us up? I think that mostly mostly catches us up on everything that's been going on over at HoopBall HQ. Topics for today's show, fairly straightforward. We're going to talk about yesterday's NBA Finals game. The Lakers falling to the Miami Heat, 115-104. There was a game on Friday as well, so I guess we could sort of look at both of those. And we will ultimately look at both of those as we try to gauge how we're going to wager on future basketball games, provided you don't see a large shift in the personnel on the court, which is very much still a possibility, as it sounds like Goran Dragic is nowhere near coming back, but Bam Adebayo apparently is not that far away. He's been upgraded to questionable from doubtful. I, I don't know about tomorrow's game, but if the, uh, the series will go till Friday, that's the two-day break, they don't play Wednesday or Thursday, he'll be back. Bam will be back by Friday, pretty sure or he'll try at the very least. He might not be fully back, but he'll probably get himself into a ball game. Bam not healthy. I don't know if that helps them all that much cuz Kelly Olynyk's been playing his ass off the last couple of ball games and the Lakers haven't really figured out what to do with the uh more floor spacey look that they're getting. A little surprised. You haven't seen the Lakers try something similar to what they ran with the Rockets. The difference really is that Jimmy Butler is moving better without the basketball than James Harden ever did. And some of these Heat guys actually don't mind going towards the rim and passing kind of on a short roll, where Houston basically just spread everybody out and it became a little bit more of a four-on-five kind of thing. Uh, we'll talk more about the line for Game 4 shortly, um, it has come down, by the way, and maybe that's a Bam bio thing going on, or maybe it's just the result of Game 3, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. Let's first go over what we saw, and what we saw in both games over the weekend, Friday and Sunday, was a Lakers team that didn't give a you-know-what. They were disengaged. By all accounts, they got outplayed in both ball games, but on Friday... They just simply had too many easy looks. Anthony Davis was uh, a man among children. LeBron was brilliant. Rajon Rondo hit his shots, including three three three-pointers. The Lakers knocked down 16 threes on Friday. They just didn't miss, and they didn't turn the ball over. The difference between Friday and Sunday is that Miami ratcheted up their level of enthusiasm, particularly on the defensive end, and the Lakers didn't match them. Schematically, Miami did change a few things around. They, they gave the Lakers a few new looks, but nothing that L.A. couldn't solve. They had wide-open looks on a ton of offensive possessions, and they just missed most of them. You know, LeBron was very good near the rim. He didn't hit many shots from outside, very few, in fact. Kuzma and Markeith Morris played pretty well off the bench, but the starters for the Lakers were generally awful. Danny Green is playing through an injury. He went 0 for 6. KCP went 1 for 5. Dwight Howard didn't really fit with what the Lakers were doing in that ball game. Although, you know, I could argue that maybe they should have given him a longer look, and perhaps they would have if Marquise Morris wasn't shooting the ball as effectively as he was. Thing is, Marquise Morris, Kyle Kuzma, J.R. Smith, KCP, Danny Green, even Caruso—these guys were all wide open on their outside shots. They just missed a bunch of them in this game. They shot okay, make no mistake, they shot all right, and the overall numbers are going to be inflated by the fact that Markeith Morris and Kuzma had better shooting games, but it actually belies just how open the Lakers were. The issue is not getting open shots. They had plenty of those. Uh, they Anthony Davis was in foul trouble, which certainly played a role in the ballgame, so you can chalk a little bit up to that. He played 33 minutes when all was said and done, but he almost played the entire second half uh, after picking up his third foul early in the second quarter in the first half. And while the Lakers were able to fight their way back to basically dead even or even a point or two ahead a couple of times in this game, they never really got over the hump. Let's talk a bit about what went into that. Number one, Jimmy Butler was nuts. Jimmy Butler was getting wherever he wanted to, whenever he wanted to. He got 14 free throws in the ballgame. He didn't commit a single person of foul. Uh, of LeBron's eight turnovers, Jimmy Butler was at least partially responsible for six of them, according to tracking data. That's a really big deal. he I can't say he single-handedly took LeBron out of his game, but LeBron was sort of floating for times in this one. He has those games every once in a while where he's just not quite himself. It seemed like he was debating whether or not he wanted to go full hero ball or continue to get people involved, and guys just weren't in the right spots. Anthony Davis with the foul trouble, and just, you know, guys, there was the communication was weird. It was just a game where it looked like the Lakers were playing a little bit drunk. Some of that was what the Heat were doing. Some of it was that the Lakers just weren't hyper focused. You know, when they were, we went through a few stretches in this game where they sort of got it pulled together and then it immediately came back apart again. And I think I said it even on Friday's podcast. Because we were talking about the line on that Friday game, which was like, oh, once everybody was ruled out for Miami, the Lakers were 9.5-point favorites. By the way, that line got bet up to 10.5 in that game, so it, it moved right across the final number. Lakers ended up winning Friday on uh, by 10 points. And it went way over the mark. 238 was the final score. Our total was 216. I, 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 have a rant, I have a rant locked and loaded for this type of thing, but I want to save it for just a minute or two from now because... What I mentioned on Friday's podcast was that when you see a team lose their superstars, there's something we've talked about many times on this show called the injured star theory, where the other guys on the team that lost its superstars, meaning the rest of the Miami Heat, tend to ratchet up their game. They play harder. Not that you could say anybody's not playing that hard in the playoffs, but these guys play more more focus, more energy for longer stints than they would if the Stars were there. It's just other guys do more. In addition, on the opposite side, a team like the Lakers sees a team like the Heat missing key pieces, and some of their guys then take their foot off the throttle. Very similar to Game 5 against the Portland Trailblazers, where the Lakers are just like, meh, we don't really have to guard these dudes. We can just outscore them because they don't have Dame, as great as they might play, they can't keep up with us. And that was 100% what the Lakers did on Friday. They just decided to go out there and score on every possession. And even if they gave up points on pretty much every possession, they figured by the end of the game, they might outplay out them, out them by, you know, three, four possessions. That's plenty without overexerting themselves. Friday was the Lakers saying, how little can we exert ourselves on defense and still win this ballgame? And they found out. But of course... The problem with that particular method of play is that, psychologically, it's very difficult to convince yourself to play harder the next time out. I know LeBron said all the right things in his post-game interview with Rachel Nichols after Game 2. He said, look, we're going to go back to the film, we're going to look at some things and, and know we can be better. But not everybody is built quite that same way. That's that's the Kobe Bryant type of mentality and now I think we're probably seeing it with Jimmy Butler and certainly LeBron has some of it maybe not quite to that same extreme of even a win is not satisfying he may have said it and he may have intended to make necessary adjustments but when you win there's a built-in if it ain't broke mentality and it's not anybody's fault I'm guilty of it and you see it you know 99.9% of the time in every competitive sport if you win you make small tweaks going into the next ball game like here are some here are some things we didn't do right that happened in this individual game but from a like They didn't stop us on offense standpoint. What are we really planning on changing on offense until they make us do it? You know, there's a a logical reason behind it. Why would I change what I'm doing if you haven't stopped it yet? You could say, well, you want to stay ahead of the curve, but what if the curve wasn't coming? Think of the Lakers series against Portland. Think of the Lakers series against Houston. After game one, they were unstoppable. And they didn't really have to change much after that offensively because Portland and Houston didn't really make any changes defensively. So had the Lakers made changes on offense, large ones, it probably would have been unnecessary, and we don't even know if they would have worked. So to some degree, the Lakers going into yesterday's game with the same general offensive scheme or mentality isn't that insane. Like, look, we creamed... Miami on Friday why do I need to change things up a ton okay reasonable but what about the other side Lakers didn't play good defense on Friday's game not by a long shot a Miami team without Adebayo and without Goran Dragic putting up 114 points on 51% shooting and 31 out of 34 free throw shooting was not good If the Lakers hadn't shot the lights out from downtown, they very well could have lost that ball game. Like, there was no reason that Miami should have been hanging around the way they were. So the Lakers then came into Sunday's game saying, well, it worked on Friday, and then they got caught with their pants down. And that's what you saw. Both in effort and in scheme. It was a double whammy. I do expect that by tomorrow, the Lakers will have cleaned things up. I don't think LeBron and AD are going to combine for 13 turnovers in tomorrow's basketball game. And that really, like, you could, you could parse the game in any number of ways. But from a, what kind of game was this? The fact that the Lakers committed seven more turnovers than Miami was basically the ball game. Like, otherwise, things were pretty tight. Miami shot the ball better at the free throw line and from the field overall, but all that stuff would have leveled off if the Lakers had just capitalized on the, the possessions they had. 19 turnovers is too many. For a team as good as L.A., if you take those seven possessions and turn them into five, six wide-open shots, which is pretty much what they were getting, even at their clip of hitting 43%, you're still talking about three additional field goals, probably at least one of those from downtown, and then wipe out garbage time. And this was basically like an 8-10 to point game that gets turned into a one-possession game. You wipe out turnovers, it's a one-possession game. It's a coin flip at that point. Which team's going to make the shot? Probably Miami, based on what we saw yesterday from their general overall shooting. But, you know, it's not the 10-point game that we saw. So, fix the turnovers. That's obviously key number one for L.A. Um, Outside of Jimmy Butler, they did a pretty good job of keeping Miami off the free throw line. Jimmy is his own experience in, you know, drawing contact from people. And then they, you know, they certainly have to do better with Kelly Olenek, who runs a bit hot and cold. He's not going to shoot the ball that well every single game, but he's been playing really well. And if is back by Friday, won't see quite as much of him, or maybe they go big. Who knows? Miami's going to get some open looks. They have enough guys that move and can pass that, even though they they don't have a ton of firepower, they maximize what they do have. Lakers have defended Tyler Hero well. They've defended Duncan Robinson well. Uh, they've defended Jay Crowder well enough. The guy, generally the the non key players, they've actually done pretty well. What they did well with Bam and and Dragic when they were in in Game One, uh, but Jimmy Butler, they really they didn't handle the right way at all. And they you know the Lakers switched sort of too easily. And then when they did switch, Butler was getting right by people. There was something strange going on, and I don't know if this was by design or if the Lakers just got caught up in the the hullabaloo of Jimmy going huge, but they really weren't giving him space. Which, by all accounts, is a terrible way to defend Jimmy Butler. He's not a great shooter. He's a brilliant, brilliant playmaker and driver of the basketball. Creates contact, creates space, gets himself near the bucket, Little floaters, step backs, fadeaways, bank shots, all that good stuff he can do, but shooting from outside is not really his thing. So why the Lakers were giving him room to potentially beat them off the dribble is anybody's guess. You you just, I mean, you have to just concede the shot if he's going ISO against someone who's not that great of a defender. Some of it was just Jimmy Butler having a massive ball game. You know, he's not going to be this good every single game. LeBron and AD are not going to be this bad every single game. And you could just make that very simplistic argument that this will level things off. Yeah, we get it. We all know the Lakers are the more talented team, and they should win this series. But again, this type of crazy stuff does happen. And for the Lakers to not take the heat seriously after being anointed post-game two was not all that unexpected. And this takes me into my rant of the day. And this is not aimed at anyone in particular. I feel like I need to start every rant with this particular disclaimer because Lord knows we're all so damn sensitive these days that as soon as somebody hears it, they're going to be like, he's talking about me. I'm not. Sorry, you're not that special. You're not. I mean, neither am I. That's the point. I should... Carly Simons, "You're So vain," should be the uh, opening jam to today's podcast. It's not about you. It's about the industry at large. Almost all of these vents, these rants, are about the industry at large. And the one that's really bugging me today is... Suddenly, everybody's a betting specialist. What? I get it. OK? From a marketing standpoint, I get it. Sports betting is legalized in a lot of places now. It's becoming very mainstream in the United States, and so everybody wants a piece of the pie. Everybody wants to be able to sell betting tools and betting expertise. But the problem is, you can't just take a fantasy expert, you can't just take a sports writer, you can't just take some schmo off the street and teach him sports betting in 24 hours and a lot of places are trying that on the one hand i understand wanting to get your slice of the pie you want people to be coming to your website for expertise and paying for opinions or tools or whatever it is that you're offering as a as a service the problem and where this is different than fantasy sports at large. I mean, think about full-season fantasy. You can take someone who doesn't really understand fantasy sports, and you can make them a fantasy pro in, like, a week of just hard study and, and tape watching. And if they're not that great, they'll learn. There's a learning curve, and it's okay because it's a full season. And someone's probably got, what, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 200 bucks on their fantasy league Okay, yeah. I mean, obviously there's some huge money leagues out there. Folks are putting 2, you know, $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 on their league and there's, you know, 25 grand up for grabs. But for the most part, the vast majority of full season fantasy leagues are somewhere in the $25 to $200 buy-in range. So I'm paying 100 bucks, let's say, for 6 months of entertainment. If an article that I read from a website I frequent from someone who's just kind of learning, is a little bit dumb, eh, not a big deal. They told me to pick up some guy. I picked him up. He turned out to be crummy. I dropped him. It's pretty different. It's, you know what? Screw that. It's very different than these same places, people, industry at large, turning everyone into a handicapper overnight where people are just like, oh, I understand this. An example of it, being and again people are going to think I'm calling somebody out but it's just the one that that sort of triggered my this this moment to get in my head is that i saw it on one of the big box sites i saw it on one of the the our, our, one of hoopball's main competitors and they, again this is not me trying to call any one place out in particular but i'm seeing it a lot these days where the site was like oh adebayo and dragic are out so look at the lakers and the under no! 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 The great Gil Alexander, one of my good buddies and expert sports handicapper, host of a numbers game on Vison who I guest with every week or two weeks, has a... the way he phrases it is one that I would like to appropriate going forward. He says, it's already baked in. That is seeing someone is injured and immediately betting the opposite side is the single most public take, perhaps, in all of sports betting. Like the line hasn't accounted for that. Be a sports, watch Watch lines for a week during the NBA regular season. And you'll see a late scratch of a superstar. The line comes off the board. And then once the superstar is officially ruled out, The line comes back up, usually three to four points off from where it was before. Oh, Luka Doncic is out? Okay, Dallas loses some two, three, four points in their power rankings, and the line moves. If you firmly believe that a particular player is worth more than what that line movement is, I will listen to your argument. But flat betting against a team that loses a key player is a very bad wager. A long-term losing proposition. And flat betting an under because a key player is out is harebrained. A key player being out changes the entire game. You've seen it here for two games in a row now. The Lakers need playing uh, an up-tempo game with minimal defense where if the Lakers shot even remotely close to as well as they normally do, the game yesterday would have gone flying over the total also. As it was, it ended up pushing. 219 at 219. So I don't mean to pick on this one particular incident that sort of triggered my brain on this rant. This is happening all across the landscape, and the reason it drives me so crazy and makes me so mad is because people that are just getting into sports betting see that flaming bag of you-know-what take out there from a site that, you know, is an expert at some stuff, and they're just like, oh... I guess this is what you do. And then, they yak up 50 bucks. They yak up another 50 bucks without ever learning the right way to handicap. People are being taught the wrong way to handicap a line because suddenly everybody's like, I understand sports betting. I've been doing it for seven days. So please, please, if you are out there, follow actual handicappers for your sports betting information. Follow people that have been doing it for 5, 10, 20 years. Not someone that's turning it on overnight. It's not a light switch. I learned this by running a sports betting podcast for two years. By talking to the people that understood how to handicap every single game on the board. It's not a light switch. It's hours of research on games. Especially when key players are out it's motivation it's power rankings it's uh optimal lineups it's 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 hundreds of factors it's not just guy out bet against woof you're not all experts please please stop trying to give expert information you're you're helping people destroy their bankrolls learn what you're doing before you become an expert it's it's so it's everywhere man I've seen it at so many big sites where they just took sports writers who'd never covered a game from a betting angle and were just like, you're a better now. Figure it out on the fly. That's a great way to lose people a ton of money because you take someone that's trusted and reputable and you make them give out bad information until they figure out how to give out good information. I hate it. It's killing people's bankroll. Not everybody has thousands of dollars to throw around. You blow up somebody's $100, $200 bankroll in a first week, they'll never bet a game again, ruining it for them. Ugh, makes me so mad. And again, I I don't mean to pick on just the incident with this Lakers heat game because this has been something that's been bugging me for months from all sorts of different websites and angles that have surfaced. And I just, that one, that one triggered me a little bit. It's like, all right, I got to, I got to jump in here. Um, I actually really, really, really love the dude that that triggered me on this one particular thing. It's it's really more about the the way that sites are moving. And uh, so again, if, if you're listening out there or if somebody's listening that thinks I'm trying to attack them, I, I promise I am not. I'm not mad at any one person in particular. I'm just upset that this is something that's expected of places now with no training. It's not fair to the riders. It's not fair to the people following them. Let's get some handicappers in there. We'll teach you all how to do it. Happy to do it. All right, what about pace? That's actually been the tool we've used the most successfully here during the postseason. The Lakers' heat game on Friday, which would be game two in the series, game one, where everybody was out on the Miami side. Uh, Miami and the Lakers, each with only nine turnovers in that ball game. Miami had a ton of free throws, but actually, by all accounts, both teams vastly overachieved from a scoring standpoint. Miami's expected... Pace was actually only about 97 in that game, but 91% on a ton of free throws and 51% from the field counterbalanced all of that. Everybody maximized their possessions in that game on Friday, and so the Heat actually overperformed by 17 damn points. Meanwhile, back at the Super Friends, uh, on the Lakers' side... You know, their rebounding advantage, 44-37, did play a role, but it sort of balanced out with the fact that they didn't get to the free-throw line all that often. Lakers were expected to finish somewhere around 115, uh, and they overperformed by 9. So actually, this game went over by about 25 points. The pace should have placed this game under, but both teams clobbered. Sunday's game... The Lakers got to the free-throw line but didn't really capitalize on them and had a truckload of turnovers, 19 turnovers in that ballgame, so they actually were supposed to be around 112. Lakers' pace didn't change all that much between Games 2 and Games 3, and yet somehow they scored 20 points less in this one. It wasn't the speed of the ballgame, maybe by about a possession, from 115 down to about 112. But then they went under by 8 because of the turnovers, the bad shooting, and not and the average free throw making, even though they got to the line all that often. So the Lakers actually should have been around one, around 112. The Heat, once again, very good. Made the most of their opportunities. The pace, their opportunities in this game should have put them around roughly 103, 104, and they overperformed by 11. So this one, actually, if you're looking at it from that standpoint, was pretty close to where it should have been with the Lakers underperforming by 8-10 to and the Heat overperforming by about 10 or 11. So this game probably should have been about a bucket lower than it was in final total. That said, I think you can safely say the total was around where it should be. The Heat pace was up. Excuse me, the Heat pace was almost exactly the same and the Lakers pace was almost exactly the same. Difference is that Instead of overperforming by 15, the Lakers underperformed by 8. So it was a, a pretty massive swing. The Heat continued to overperform by quite a bit each of the last two games offensively. So when you look at this game on Tuesday, the total of 218 and a with the line of Lakers by 7.5, if indeed Adebayo's back, that actually probably slows things down a tiny bit. And I don't know that offensively it's a massive help for Miami. I think they were better in this last game with the floor spaced out around Jimmy Butler. Now, don't get me wrong. Having Adebayo on the defensive end is a big win. Having him in there instead of Kelly Olenek changes things just from a rebounding standpoint among everything else. So they'll certainly take him if he's playing on Tuesday. But at a first glance, at a first glance, this pace looks like it should be under. But we'll deep dive on that one tomorrow as we're looking at that ball game. All the lines, everything we talk about on the sports betting standpoint is brought to you by our buddies at mybookie.ag. Head there now. Use promo code HOOPBALL when you sign up to unlock a 100% deposit bonus match. They will match what you put in. When I say 100%, they'll match what you put in. You put in 50 bucks, they'll put in 50 bucks. You put in 100, they'll put in 100. Easy, easy peasy. You get your first deposit doubled with free play. Use that joint. Roll it over. Use it enough. It becomes true dollars and cash them out like the rest of it. We will, of course, stay attuned to any odds boost stuff that bookie might throw out. That's been a lot of fun for us. We've made about $130, $140 by playing those wagers without ever really sweating it even a tiny bit. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> and MyBookie.ag has the easiest payouts in the industry. Get an e-check sent to you within days. If you use Bitcoin, you can get it within moments. I don't. I don't fully understand it, but I sort of wish I did. Uh, MyBookie.ag. Promo code again is HoopBall, H-W-O-P-B-A-L-L. You bet. You win. They pay. Tomorrow, I'll tell you more about ExpressVPN and Manscaped.com. Today, we will just leave you with the MyBookie thoughts and rumble along from there. Uh, coaching stuff we'll go over on tomorrow's show as well. I really wanted to spend today recapping the weekend, especially since this show is coming in the afternoon, as many of them will be this week. Again, thank you, everybody, for bearing with us. This was Fantasy NBA Today. Hold the fantasy. I'm your host, Dan Vespers. Have a great Monday, everybody. We'll talk to you tomorrow at some point. So long.